Thank you for visiting the website of the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. I'm Warren Berkeley. I need to begin with four statements from the Bible, each having its own power to awaken us, refresh our commitment to God and to His will. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And along that same line, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, But test everything, hold fast to what is good. These verses share a common point of conviction, and that is that Christians hold firmly to the will of God revealed in the written word. The passage in Matthew is about doing the will of God. The one in 2 Timothy rightly handling the word of truth. In 1 John, test the spirits. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, but only hold fast to what is good. Together and surrounded by the total context of the New Testament, we understand our obligation to learn and live by God's will given in His Word. No matter where the world goes, no matter the opposition or persecution, no matter how others perceive us or judge us or which way culture turns, the Bible is our final authority. This is why when you come to Laurel Heights or visit our website, we promise teaching and preaching from the text of Scripture. We do not promise we will be like the mega churches, or that we will imitate the denominations or provide more excitement than some form of worldly attraction. Because of what is taught in passages like this, we want to be certain we are right with God, that all we do is according to His Word. So, in this sermon, I want to take us to a useful exercise in discernment. If 1 John 4 verse 1 says to test the spirits, and if 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says to test everything, we want to do just that. And in this sermon, I will call attention to this reality. What you see is not always what the Bible says. You cannot look around at the offerings of modern religion and assume that must be in the Bible somewhere. It is necessary to apply your knowledge of the Bible to discern, to know what should and should not have your support and participation. So this sermon is about four priorities in modern religion 
that you cannot find in the Bible. Four priorities in modern religion that you cannot find in the Bible. Number one, numbers. In America, we are a people who count a lot. We count money, we count votes, we count how many people attend an event. And if not many attend, we may impulsively conclude that the event didn't really have much value. In religion, there is an obsession with counting, with numbers. The question is usually how many showed up, not about what was taught to those present, not the worth of those who came to be edified. No, how many showed up? What was the count? Some churches have attendance charts and attendance boards and attendance counters. In some places, there is comparison and competition with envy and boasting. It has become an obsession. Some seem to be convinced that counting is the way you measure spiritual strength and value. And if the numbers are down, there is a tendency to place blame on the ones who attended, the preacher, the song leader, the elders. You must be doing something wrong. The numbers are down, many people might say. It doesn't seem to occur to some people that maybe the people who stayed home share an interest in that blame. Maybe the people who are not here don't want to be here. There's a thought, sad, but realistic. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, about how it would be after his message was delivered. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, please take note of this. In the Bible, observe this terminology and in this passage in particular about the many and the few. Jesus speaks to us of reality. He wants us to understand something. Many are looking for the broad way that is easy and less demanding and wide through the narrow gate of truth and redemption in Christ there are only a few. He said those who find it are few. Now, this is not spoken to discourage us. It is spoken to awaken us to reality. We are a minority. And we became a part of this blessed minority when we made the choice to be forgiven and be disciples of Christ. When you advertise yourself as Bible only, when you hold to the pattern of sound words, when you test the spirits and rightly divide the word of God, there are many who are just not interested. That's reality. Our task is to find the few who are. But let's never imagine that we will be what everybody else wants us to be in terms of numbers or that our message will 
resonate to every single person on earth. Our calling is to be what God wants us to be, serving him according to his word. We are not called to count. We are called to obey, to serve, to be holy, to faithfully proclaim the word. See, the seed we are to plant is the word of God, Luke 8 verse 11. We cannot force that seed into the minds of people. We cannot hammer it into a heart that is not good and honest. We plant the seed and leave the results to God. What people need is not crowds, but to glorify God. The Bible says in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's where our focus must be, our obsession. God has not commanded his people to accumulate numbers and money and think that there's spiritual value in those commodities. He has commanded us to sow the seed, teaching and preaching from the text of Scripture, and illustrating what Scripture says by what we do individually and collectively. Here's something else that receives so much attention in the religious world, but is contrary to what the Bible says, an emphasis on style. I'll call this observation, this priority in modern religion, style over substance. And I want to begin in making this point by reading 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul to the church at Corinth, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, every culture, every generation develops its own style or fashion. That becomes popular. We sometimes talk about what is trending. During the time of Paul, great emphasis was placed on what was called rhetoric, impressive vocabulary, celebrated speaking ability, and intellectual demonstration. It was the Grecian community, and it was mostly about style, about men impressing other men. There would be exciting competition. Who is the best speaker? Who has the best presentation? And it wasn't so much about content as it was style, eloquence, excellence of delivery, and one's appearance on stage. Prestige was considered over principle. Appearance was applauded above authority and application to life was absent. The advantage went to the man who had the popular style, not the man who had the truth. Now, may I ask you to listen again to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom, 
for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, with the strongest personal intention, determined not to play into popular style. He would be clear and passionate, but without any interest in winning a speech contest or having a larger audience than another, or rallying to himself fans or followers. His emphasis, his main concern, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted people to know who Jesus is, what Jesus did and taught, so that people could respond, obeying the gospel, being saved from their sins. Today, in modern religion, there is a popular style that pleases audiences, that draws crowds, that generates revenue, but doesn't have the right emphasis and may, in many cases, deliver a message that isn't God's message. Churches have embraced the culture of style over substance. It is embarrassing how far some churches and preachers will go to see what others are doing to be cool and to show that they are friends of the world. The highest goal of some churches seems to be to have a cool, young, handsome, rock star type preacher. Obviously, I am pleased that style doesn't hold any weight with those people that I work with. Someone has said, in times when your faith is unsettled and your heart is being bombarded by the world and you're walking away from God, the devil will send human religious attractions around you like a swarm of flies from Egypt. Listen carefully to those religious offerings that are so noisy today. And after you observe what's happening there, in fact, I'll say before you do that, Use the word of God to discern between what's right and what's not. What so many people want today is not worship, but entertainment. A book was written a few years ago by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Postman's argument in the book was, when entertainment dominates, we end up trivializing our lives. Entertainment, well-chosen and moderated, can be innocent and healthy, but when the culture shifts the emphasis to entertainment and we follow along, there are drastic implications for the human race with that obsession. And by the way, Postman's book was published 20 years ago. It has happened, and the shift toward entertainment has current implications in modern religion, preachers in many places are expected to be entertainers. Audiences demand comedy, music, high emotional expectations. Show business has come to church. Across Protestant and Catholic spectrums, small local groups, megachurches, community churches, 
in the minds of so many. The key now is not Bible teaching and worship directed to God, praying and other boring things, but instead relaxed, informal, interesting, relevant TV video style services. Worship planners have playbooks and scripts, not Bibles. The community is profiled. The market studies show what people want, and worship planners craft a show based on the desires of the people in the community. Where is God in all of this? In John chapter 4, would you please listen verses 23 and 24. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Personal amusement is nowhere in these words of Christ. Worship is about God, offering our praise and honor to him according to all that he has said. The point I'm making is not that all entertainment and amusement and recreation is wrong in your personal lives. Rather, worship does not include these human trivialities. Worship is all about the attention, the adoration, the sincere acknowledgement we give to God. I'm planning to deal with that in a future sermon very soon. James Packer said, Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their Creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to Him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of His greatness and graciousness. It involves praising Him for who He is, thanking Him for what He has done. Think of these words, adoration, reverence, love, praise, sincere admiration, Godward. That's worship. Sincere participants in the assembly to worship are blessed. There is a manward dimension in that we exhort, encourage, and edify one another, but all of this is directed to God. God is the audience. Everything we think, say, and do about this subject must be centered in God. When the church becomes a nightclub, the pulpit becomes a stage, and the audience is bored with truth, seeking carnal pleasure, God has been left out. One more point in our analysis of popular religion. One of the priorities in popular religion is minimum requirements. Have you noticed sometimes on the signs outside church buildings, advertising that often says to prospective members, it is easy here. We don't require much. Come as you are. Leave when you want. No pressure. 
Sometimes they almost say no commitment. There is a prevailing attitude of drop-in-and-drop-out religion. Come if you want to. Participate if you want. It's all okay. No commitment required. The prevailing attitude is to have the least level of commitment, to only have minimum requirements. I want us to listen to Jesus Christ and be listening for how he describes the commitment of being his follower. And I'm going to read from Luke 14, 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's summarize what Jesus said in Luke 14, 25 to 35. Let's summarize it in two words. Jesus said, follow me. Let's ask Jesus, with what kind of devotion, Lord? He said, love me so much. You keep loving me even if your family turns away. He said things like, bear your cross. You cannot be my disciple if you do not bear your cross. He said, count the cost, lay the foundation, and build. And even this, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not looking for people who show up when they feel like it. He is not promising convenience. He is not saying, will you please make me just a little part of your life, please? Someone asked an old preacher one time, would you not advise young Christians to do something for the Lord? No, the old preacher said. I should advise them to do everything for the Lord. Modern religion is satisfied with meeting minimal requirements, but not Jesus. Jesus said, count the cost and be my disciple. 
maybe some of us, need to get past our immature, limited views of discipleship, open the word and change our practices, become more consistent and disciplined and committed. Do you just want to be like most religious people in the world? Is that your goal? Or do you want to be like those in the New Testament who are described as authentic disciples of Christ, who get up every day to be his disciples in the daily grind of life? You need to decide who you're going to be. Do you know the difference between a disciple of Christ and an ordinary religious person? The ordinary religious person plays around the edges of church and religion. The disciple of Christ follows the teachings of Jesus every day. We want to be more than just what we see in the religious world, the ordinary religious person. You have to decide. Are you going to be just an ordinary religious person, some sort of generic Christian, or a true, involved, zealous disciple of Christ committed to his teachings? It cannot be both. To avoid the temptation and trap of modern religion that takes you away from God and his word, recognize these two simple things from the Bible, from the New Testament. Christ has all authority, not the culture, not the huge religious empires. Christ has all authority, the right to tell you what is right and worthy of your response. Two, according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Christians are people who, after being baptized, observe the commandments of Christ. Both of these points need to be further recognized by us on the deepest possible level. Christ has all authority, and Christians are people who, after being baptized, observe the commandments of Christ. We hope that choice will be yours, to obey Christ in baptism, and then after that, observe his commandments. Thank you for listening to this recording.